Hi, I'm Peter Harrington, and you're listening to Policy and Pandemics, a podcast from OPM giving you a unique look into the COVID-19 crisis around the world. Welcome to episode three of Policy and Pandemics from OPM. I'm Peter Harrington. In this series, we are speaking to people around the world to understand the big policy challenges of COVID-19 and how governments are responding. In our first two episodes, we heard how Albania and Pakistan are handling the crisis. This week, we're heading to South Africa to focus on the all-important public health response there. As our guest, we're delighted to have Beth Engelbrecht, who is Emeritus Head of the Health Department in the Western Cape and involved in leading the COVID response there. Beth, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Peter. Um, Beth, could you just tell us a little bit about your background and the current role you're playing in the COVID-19 crisis in Western Cape? Thank you. So um, I've been in the public health sector for about 30 years um, in, in various levels. Um, and for the past 20 years, I've been at a, kind of a deputy director general, which is your, your highest level. And then the last five years also as the head of department, which is your highest level in that province. Um, and yeah, I've just on the end of March, I kind of I stepped out, um, but then was asked to just to come back and just support in from a strategic perspective in the response to COVID. Can you tell us a little bit about the story so far of COVID in South Africa and in Western Cape? Thank you. So since we um, realized that uh, this uh, epidemic, which started in Wuhan, is not going to be an epidemic, it's going to be a pandemic, we started to kind of really get ourselves in order uh, and prepare for that. Uh, And we always said it's not if it will come to South Africa, we just said when. And that helped us to really start preparing. So when the first case uh, arrived on the 5th of March in uh, another province, um, which is one of the most populous provinces in KwaZulu-Natal. And from there, it's the same group of people who, who returned from a ski trip in Italy. Um, they then kind of, the part of that group ended up in Gauteng um, and some of them also in Cape Town. Um, and these are the three metro, large metropole provinces. And kind of, obviously, that is where the big uh, push is also at the moment, the highest growth. From a national level, obviously, the question was looking um, internationally how the, how the disease unfolds and the epidemic unfolds in various countries. The question was, so what does it mean for South Africa and when do we start doing, doing what? On the 15th of March, a national disaster was uh, recorded. Um, a national disaster for three months, and that then um, provides the, the ability for government to give out a lot of new regulations under the Disaster Management Act. And we started with a lockdown on the 26th of um, March. That was then for three weeks. And the main purpose then was to see to what extent the health system can gear up. Now, up till well, last year, the, the general public complaint has been that the public health sector is not strong. There was a big drive to establish national health insurance and the big complaint was, you know, the public health system is not strong enough. So it was important to to give the the sector time just to gear up and set up and get the act uh, together. The first case in the Western Cape uh, came in on the 11th. Um, By that time, fortunately, we already had people trained um, in terms of the basic stuff of IPC, get our hospitals, at least one or two of them ready. 
get the protocols for testing um, and also all the kind of get the protective uh, equipment for, for staff. Um, our, the initial hospital was Tigerberg Hospital, which is always kind of it's a tertiary setting, a central hospital. And they, they are also there also for nuclear disasters, for hemorrhagic fever. So they are very well equipped. So it was good to start there, to start and learn our lessons there. Uh, we are very fortunate to have very strong people working with um, modeling diseases um, and get a sense of what can be expect based on the limited information from the international space. But obviously South Africa is, is very different from other countries. We've got a very large TB burden, a very large HIV burden, a very large communicable diseases burden. And how do you factor those in, in a country where there's also very high levels of unemployment and socioeconomic difficulties? So, so all those factors were taken into consideration. And then there was the best possible predictions of what, what can we expect. How have the people of South Africa and the people of Western Cape responded to COVID? And how has the government gone about trying to um, affect that behaviour change using communications? It's important to understand the context um, of South Africa and then also of, of the Western Cape. The, the apartheid uh, legacies are very ingrained in people's psyche um, and the, 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 the differences and the, um, the socio-economic um, equalities um, very, very much came to the fore in this period as well. Um, from various people's perspectives, the disease was brought in by people from the middle class who can fly around the globe and then come back and bring the disease to us. And now there's a lockdown and we are not allowed to have any economic activities. We don't have jobs. We can't go stand on the street corner. We can't do our domestic uh, jobs. Um, and so, so it, it, it definitely... Um, had an, had an influence on people's psyche and their commitment to change behavior because it's not, it's not necessarily our illness. Uh, it is something that was brought in by others. I must say the president did a lot when the way that he handled the communication to indicate that this is, this is a South African issue. It's a, it's a global pandemic it's a global emergency that everybody has to play their part and it's in their best interest there were there were three zoom sessions where the whole country was invited to link up to the zoom um, and and they, they were hosted by the department of the minister of health nationally um, and on one of them i think there were more than a thousand people on the zoom meeting uh, and they a national uh, advisor to the minister was allowed to talk about the epidemic and then the eight, the eight, I think he called it the eight stages of response. I think the fact that there was such an open communication to say that this is what's happening, this is the reason why we are preparing this way, that helped a lot. I think the other aspects related to behavior change was, what does it mean? There were such confusing messages and what we in the health sector found very worrying is that they see the images internationally of everybody walking around with a medical mask. And then suddenly our hospitals just ran out of medical masks and N95 respirators. 
um, and you could see the general public walking around with medical masks, but the staff didn't have enough PPE. Um, and that's how our initial communication was, don't wear a mask at this time of the epidemic. Because what we found is that people will wear a mask, a medical mask or a cloth mask or whatever, they will fiddle with it all the time. They will touch their face all the time. So it was a strong message to say that at the moment where the epidemic is, don't wear a mask. You're actually doing yourself more harm uh, than good. So wash your hands, cough etiquette, um, social distancing, focusing on that. So we, we called it the five golden rules. And there's a consistent message that went out. Um, that I must say that the impact on the availability of the medical masks, that helped a lot. The big thing is the physical distancing. That is a big risk. And we find that the initial pockets of cases emerged from weddings and funerals. Um, and with the lockdown, weddings obviously were stopped and funerals were limited to 50 people. But still, and somehow funerals is culturally a big issue, but somehow every time there's a funeral, there were a lot of positive cases that emerged from there. And, and yet, um, nationally, that policy has not changed. Um, and, and, you know, the way the people slaughter cattle, they, they eat together, the, the way that they engage at the funeral is, is, is actually putting to, to the big risk. And also in the informal settlements, people bundle to get water, people congregate to get to the toilets, um, etc. So the, the, um, the environmental limitations uh, and access to basic amenities um, is, is definitely a big issue. And you also find people up to 20 living in a household. So um, it's a big challenge. There's so many things you've just spoken about that I want to pick up on. Um, you've spoken about the messaging um, and the challenges, you know, the cultural legacies and the socioeconomic legacies. You've spoken about the challenge of getting the messaging out to change behavior. And, um, and of course, the, the material conditions in, in different areas around social distancing. I have some follow-up questions, but first I'd like to play you something. If that's okay, Beth. I want to play you yeah. a, um, a short uh, video clip. So, as a South African, you will no doubt know the famous song Pata Pata by Miriam Makeba. Yeah. You know, a famous song, yes. probably her most famous song from the 70s and probably one of your greatest cultural icons. So this yes, is a, absolutely. So this song, this video I'm about to play you is a, a sort of remake of Pata Pata, which means touch, touch in, in Corsa. So this is called No Pata Pata, so don't touch. is amazing and that 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 type of messaging will make a big difference i'd really love to have a copy of that i think that's a really fun really nice um remake and update on a on an iconic song and you can hear in the lyrics there messages about keeping your distance and washing your hands yeah i'd love to know how has the government and how have policymakers and communicators gone about trying to make it possible for people to 
to actually comply with social distancing. In somewhere like Kailicha, which I believe is Western Cape's largest township, there might be 20 people living to one to one residence. People uh, work informally. They might need to go and collect water. They might need to go and recharge their phone. They might need to just be out to do all kinds of things, but also to earn a, you know, a basic livelihood. How do you implement a lockdown in somewhere like Kailicha? The difficulty is the houses are within a meter from each other. Um, and they are, you've got backyard dwellings, you've got, it's, it, it, it is one of those big things. And what we now find with the, um, if a person in the, in the household is positive, it is very easy to identify that the whole household has been, are actually close contacts. So from a quarantine and isolation perspective, we actually have to uplift the whole family and quarantine them. Now, the risk there is they are away from their household, so their stuff is not protected. Um, and the community, there's a lot of um, people are not seeing well to others. There's a lot of stigma to families or individuals who are, who are positive. We, we do believe that over time, when more and more people are affected, the stigma will reduce. But at the moment, that's one of our so We have to uplift a whole family and put them in a quarantine facility for 14 days, um, which brings its own risks. Um, but we know that as we, we are only entering the, the steep uphill of the, of the epidemic curve now, so we know that we will not be able to uphold that for a long time. So we are looking at some community care centers um, for, for just helping people to quarantine if they can't do that in their own households. Um, but uh, the kind of, you know, putting markers outside of a clinic or outside of a shopping mall, one and a half meter out of it, you know, that you can do. But when people bundle and wait for the transport and whatever, we find that social distancing, especially physical distancing, is really not, not, not happening. Um, and we do hope that the cloth mask will at least give us some, some protection in that space. But the, uh, the, the rate of growth in the Kailicha community is, at the moment, it's, it's growing exceptionally fast. It's really interesting to me that you are using the methods of contact tracing and, and, uh, and quarantining alongside lockdown, alongside behavior change, social distancing. So it's a, it's a whole package. You're not relying solely on lockdown to solve a yeah. problem. You're, you, know, you seem to be taking a, uh, an approach which combines a bundle of different measures. I'm interested to know, how have you got organized with the contact tracing and the quarantining? That must require a lot of people, a lot of, of logistics, a lot of coordination. Um, we are often confronted by epidemics, measles epidemic, we had a diphtheria outbreak, we had a, um, a, Congo, a Congo fever um, outbreak. So, so we do have uh, uh, outbreak response teams that have been in place all along. And we've got a, a kind of a point person who is our communicable disease coordinator for the province. Um, and they are then connected to district um, communicable disease uh, and disease outbreak response teams. And I must say, we're very privileged to have public health specialists who are working in our services. And they are really brilliant. And they are working then with epidemiologists to work on that. 
but to, to, to expand the outbreak response team. So we work with our environmental health officers. So we've just pulled a lot of people in, volunteers, the universities, because the universities are closed. They sent some of the students in to, to assist with um, contact tracing um, and also just to phone contacts and, and, and get them out. So we, we are relying on a lot of volunteers. We also have a very strong network of non-governmental organizations um, who have community health workers um, and they are amazing. They are doing the most amazing work to really get, uh, and they know the communities, they know where to go. I think it's really fascinating to listen to this because I'm struck by the contrast between a context like South Africa and context in Europe where communicable disease outbreaks are incredibly rare. And so in a mm. way in South Africa, you have an existing infrastructure, um, yeah. a, a, a network of people at different levels who have relationships to each other and relationships with the community. So the trust is, you know, there's trust and there's knowledge and there's know-how that's already in the, in the system. Do you think that's, helped South Africa and Western Cape um, be more agile and be more effective in its response? Absolutely. Now, thank you, Peter, for picking that up. We've also, in, in the department, especially the period that, that I was the, the HUD, invested a lot in leadership development, uh, dispersed leadership and decision-making, and, and, and invested a lot in changing the culture of the organization, that there's trust and openness and transparency so that there is an ability to connect beyond silos. Um, and, and, and you're right, building relationships, um, giving people authority to take decisions, um, th that has helped a lot. And as you say, our previously, whenever we had uh, outbreaks and measles, we will always reflect afterwards to see how can we learn from this and how can we continue to strengthen the resilience um, of the system. So we've got a very strong resilience focus on individuals and teams and the system. And we've also focused a lot on the system strengthening and not only on disease specific focus areas like TB or HIV or what so we always spoke about. How is the system responding? Because the patients come with a, a package of diseases, you can't focus only on one. So building those relationships and the, the, the resilience in those systems has definitely helped a lot. Tell us a bit more about um, what you call dispersed leadership and dispersed decision-making. I'm fascinated by what that is and why that's important for a public health crisis like this. So very often in, in, in government settings, you have a very strong command and control system. And if something goes wrong, you are everybody's, the whole system come down on you. Um, and that actually then puts you in a situation of fear and you don't want to innovate and try things out. So what we've said is that you've got the authority to take decisions because you know the best in the front line. You take decisions that's best for them. If something goes wrong, let us talk about it, but we, we give you the freedom to make mistakes. Um, so people have learned the ability to rather trust each other and work in teams to check with each other than to rely on somebody from up there to come with a solution. Um, and so even now, when we are reflecting on where we are with the epidemic and what's working and what's not working, and we are already saying to each other, you know, it does appear that the, the continued investment in um, government-provided quarantine and isolation facilities is not a good investment of money. We just don't have the resources to go on with that. So very soon we're going to say, look, um, we might change tack there. 
and it's because people on the ground feel free enough to let us know and so I want you to answer this question for me. So I think that cascaded kind of disbursement of leadership and authority for decision making is really helping a lot in the setting as well. I love this idea that everybody at every level of the system is expected to exercise leadership during this process. What I'm struck by with the approach and the mindset that you're describing with this dispersed decision making is that it's so much better able to facilitate the learning that needs to happen. Yeah. And yeah. one of the features of this crisis of a, of a pandemic like this is it requires an enormous amount of learning in context. What have you learned in the first couple of months of this crisis and what has the government learned? Um, you know, what are the, the key learnings that have come through or kind of course corrections that have come through based on what you're you know, hearing back from your, from your leaders at every level? The critical, the critical learning actually is that what was good before the epidemic is stronger. So if there were good relationships, it's really now even stronger and you can much faster get to decision-making and planning and get coherence, etc. Where there were a little bit of fracture lines, uh, they become wider. And you had to put in so much more energy to both relationships in those, across those fracture lines. So that was kind of, I think, one of the, the critical um, observations. Uh, and again, reinforcing the need to really focus on building relationships when times are good so that you can rely on those when times are not that good. So that was one of the critical ones. Um, and then I think from a, a response to the epidemic perspective, it was that kind of the fact that we've got public health specialists, um, they are connected to the center as a public health specialist family, kind of, uh, but then they're also directly engaging with the front line. And they are uh, kind of uh, super connectors to connect the front line with the, the center for decision making. So they will then ask those difficult questions and they will do analysis from their own perspective. Um, because one of the questions I had, for example, was the testing regime. So initially we had uh, one factory and we had a cluster of people who were positive. And at the time of the epidemic, we tested everybody. And we had a large return on that testing. So clearly uh, we had, they had to close down and clean out and everything. And then now we've got supermarkets where we've got clusters, uh, but we don't have enough testing capacity to test everybody. So now, what does that mean in terms of for the employer to deal with the, the, the staff, you know? And hence, we tell employers rather regard every staff member as an asymptomatic transmitter than waiting for somebody to come and tell you this or that person is positive. So, so and then I asked the question to these uh, public health specialists, so help me to understand the testing regime and the, and, and, and the way we're looking at this. And it was very clear that your, your regime that you put in place and your convention has to adapt as the epidemic unfolds. But you have to be so on top of it and you need to get a lot of feedback from the front line to be able to do that. And what we then also do, we connect our insights to the national insights and the national um, intelligence because we are now kind of the biggest burden <laughs> of the of the epidemic uh, in the country um, so a lot of our learnings then also help the country uh, to learn from that what have been 
the most difficult policy decisions over the past weeks as this crisis has, has unfolded and, and spread? Look, apart from focusing on the suppression part, eh, your, your um, lockdown and, and containing the disease through screening and testing and quarantining and isolating and get all of that, we also had to start moving into the mitigation part of the strategy, which is get extra beds in, get extra critical care capacity. We have to prepare our municipalities for burial sites and all of this. We had to look at the whole um, kind of care continuum, if I can put it like that, and then for every step of that, see whether we've got policies in place, we've got systems in place, and that we know what the data tells us to prepare. I think the biggest challenge for us now is initially there were big promises of a lot of money that will come our way. So please set up these quarantine and isolation sets, put up, we, you need to put up settings for 1,500 hospital beds, buy private beds from the private sector. And now uh, they turned around and said, oops, no money. So now you have to reprioritize an already extremely stressed uh, public budget. So, yes, I think that's going to be the, 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 the change of that. And I think the other one was also for me to get the other sectors to take responsibility. So they can't say health is health's problem. It is the country's problem, it's whole of society problem. And everybody has their part. And I must say, I think we're systematically getting there, uh, but you also need to give people the confidence um, to deal, to deal with that. And I think the other part is that um, our health workers, we've got a large quantum of health workers who are uh, who tested positive. Most of them got it in the community, but obviously their co-workers are fearful um, of, of what's happening. We had one death um, from a community transmission, but the fear uh, in the staff is massive, especially in our ambulance staff. Um, and how to deal with that. Um, so we are meeting on a weekly basis for three to four hours with our unions just to talk them through the stuff, let them be our allies rather than our opponents. It's an, there's an enormous responsibility to protect the people who are putting themselves in harm's way and an enormous sort of debt to those people. I want to finish up by looking into the future a little bit, Beth. You mentioned that South Africa is starting to ease some of the suppression measures like lockdown. Can you tell us a bit about that easing process? How the public health department and the government is planning for the risks that come with that easing and what sort of problems you see a month, two months, three months down the line that you're trying to prepare for? So um, we've uh, adapted a risk-adjusted uh, economic uh, return and on five levels. Um, and we indicated that the total lockdown, it was at the time until uh, last week, Thursday, has been um, level five. So then there's kind of every level, um, you, you, you can progress to level one, where the total economy is open and international flights might be open again. So that's kind of the ultimate achievement. So we want to believe that the investments that we've made in terms of getting employers to give staff cloth masks, I don't think we're there yet, but at least to protect the workers, to make sure that the public transport, that their systems are in place, that your retail stores, we met with nearly any possible retail company. So when they open, they know what to do. 
So I think the investment in the various sectors have really helped a lot. Um, we are still very concerned about the police um, and correctional services um, uh, in terms of um, their ability to keep on their essential services, but they still have to continue to do what they do, but there's quite a large infection right there. And how do we, how do we deal with that? So that, that remains areas of concern. So the, the, the moving from level five to level one is dependent on firstly the health system uh, readiness or uh, abilities. Um, and one of the measures is your local transmission rate. Now clearly the Cape Town specifically has got a very high local transmission rate. Yet that is also the economic center of the Western Cape. Um, and, 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 and that's going to be a difficult one. So we've got a few pockets of high transmission like Kailicha, like Dunoon, etc. So they are very high pocket of transmission, but the rest of Cape Town is, is kind of less. So, so now it is the, 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 the president indicated that the National, um, uh, the national Council that will decide on which level, but the, pro the, the premier at the province will also have some capacity to take decisions on, uh, you know, unlocking certain areas. Um, so th th that is where they are at the moment, but I must say a lot of technical work went into getting digital um, uh, understanding on how to, how to plan transport better, uh, etc. A lot of the stuff that we couldn't get ready in, <laughs> in years. People are getting ready now in a short space of time. So um, I think the biggest risk is going to be people congregating, people moving, and then the virus obviously moving with them. Uh, the fact that there's asymptomatic um, transmission um, and also that we've got a large population of quite vulnerable people um, and what will that mean? So, so I think we are, we are in difficult times lying ahead for the next two months. I'm interested, you know, finally to think about the, op you know, the flip side, you know, the other side of the coin from the risks, which is this idea that with crisis also comes opportunity. And I'd, I'd love to hear from your perspective, as someone who's worked in the public health system in South Africa for 30 years, what sort of optimistic things do you see in this crisis? What opportunities do you see in this crisis for lasting change, for lasting reform, for ways to actually strengthen and accelerate some of the things that you've worked your whole career for? That is something that does make me extremely excited. Um, and we've always, whenever there was a crisis, we look at what are the opportunities and rather invest in the opportunities and whatever decisions you take and whatever investments you make, let those investments take you to where you want to go and that they're not short-lived. Short um, uh, we, we are on a journey to kind of get a universal health coverage. Um, although we've got good coverage in terms of 80% of the population, although they're uninsured, they actually got quite good access, but the quality is not that good due to the low investment in public health. We've got um, first world medical and nursing care in our services, even in our public services, but people wait long. Very often uh, operations are canceled. So, so from that, from a patient experience perspective, it is, it is not what the patients would like to have. And we've been struggling to get to, to, to really get other sectors 
to take their responsibility for what will improve their health status. As you know, health is the universal recipient of everything that goes wrong in education, economic affairs, everywhere. So now with this um, epidemic, we can now get a whole of society response to what is the best from health perspective. And health becomes the center of the agenda that drives a whole government response. And we wish to kind of tap into that more to say that for us to improve the health status of, of the public and the citizens, every sector has to play their part. And you need the type of political leadership that you've got now. You need that for health as well going forward. So yeah, I think it's, it's difficult times, but it's actually extremely exciting times. What parting advice would you give, Beth, for other public health leaders across Africa or in other parts of the world who are grappling with this crisis or who are perhaps earlier in the, in the process than, than you are in Western Cape? The, the first thing is to, to, to really get, to, to prepare well. And you, pre you prepare well to set teams, a range of teams, a network of teams that are connected. You've got your core team, and we've got gold command, silver command, bronze command, and then we've got a lot of other commands in between. But all of them are connected, and all of them work from the same database. And information is becoming very visible, um, and also we allow people to take decisions. So, and again, if you're kind of investing in trusting relationships, make sure that people, uh, you know, that people feel free to talk, that people feel free to make mistakes um, and that they, they rather try things out and that they then feel free to, to bring that back. So I would say making sure your data is, is good, that the data is visible, that you've got a range of teams and you've got rapid and agile decision-making with political leadership um, at the centre. Beth Engelbrecht is the Emeritus Head of the Health Department in Western Cape, South Africa. Beth, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Really fascinating. Thank you for being on Policy and Pandemics. Thank you very much, Peter. Good luck. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Policy and Pandemics. A big thank you to our producer, Catherine Valentine, and our editor, Emmy Fairburn. You can get all our podcasts, as well as blogs, papers, and much more at opml.co.uk. And find us on Twitter at OPM Global. Until next time, stay safe. Thank you.